Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. God willing, this morning I want to speak from the 22nd chapter of Matthew, reading verses 34 to 40, as we think together on the great commandment. Matthew 22, beginning in the 34th verse. But when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now the rabbis had calculated the laws that God had revealed in the law of Moses. And they had come up with 613 laws, 248 positive laws and 365 negative laws. And among themselves, the various rabbinic schools had a debate, an ongoing debate as to which of these laws was the greatest. And they couldn't agree among themselves. And on this occasion, one of the lawyers brings this very divisive issue to Jesus in an attempt to trip him up. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Which one is more important than the rest? And Jesus answers him by citing two Old Testament scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 28. Now, he actually embellishes the question, which is the great commandment, and he lists two. He says, the first and great commandment is to love God with all your heart. And then he adds, the second is likened to it. Now, this second is a new commandment. What Jesus will teach us in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. The second is likened to it, that is, it goes together, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. Now basically what he's doing is he's summarizing the ten commandments into two. And you may know that those ten commandments were given to Moses on two tables of the law. And Bible students typically talk about the two tables of the law in terms of the first four commandments, which speak of man's duty to God, a vertical direction. You know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The first four commandments. And then the last six commandments are horizontal, our duty to our fellow man. Honor your father and mother, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not commit adultery, and so forth. So notice you've got a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. 
And Jesus summarizes the 10 then in terms of the great commandment, love God with all your heart and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now what he's teaching us here is that love is the fulfilling of the law. It's central to keeping God's law. Romans 13 verse 10 teaches us that much when he says, love worketh no ill toward his neighbor. If you truly love somebody, you're not going to hurt them. You're not going to steal from them. You're not going to lie about them. You're not going to injure them in person or property in any way. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You see how all six commandments in the second table are fulfilled in this idea, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the same is true in the first four. If you truly love God, you're not going to worship an idol or blaspheme the name of God or break his Sabbath or attribute glory to something that is beneath the revelation of God in Scripture. So the first commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Now Jesus, like I said, quotes from Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. May I turn back and get that passage right quickly? Because this passage was crucial to the Jewish economy. It's called the Jewish Shema. And the Shema is the most basic rule or guideline in Jewish life and worship. It was repeated actually twice each day at the morning and the evening sacrifice. At 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m., the priest would repeat the Shema, and here's what it said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, our responsibility to God is not merely to obey Him or to serve Him, but it's to love Him. The heart is involved. You're to love God with all your heart, says the Lord Jesus. This is the great commandment. And I'll say that this first commandment is the great commandment because it takes priority over all the rest. We sing about that, don't we? Let us love our God supremely. And then let us love each other too. Let us love God first and most and highest. Let us love our God supremely. And I suggest the sequence of these two commandments is important. The first commandment is first on purpose. Notice he doesn't say the first commandment is to love other people. And then secondly, love God. But God is to be first even above other people. And the point that is clear in this sequence is that sometimes love for God may very well seem to be unloving toward other people. That is, if you and I are truly going to love God and His righteous law, others may perceive that as unloving to them. But love for God must come first. For instance, in our culture today, many people are saying the church should tolerate all kinds of alternate lifestyles. Because if you don't, you're not loving people. Well, love to God must come first, okay? Love God supremely, and then we love each other too. Sometimes parents have to say no, and the children perceive that as being unloving toward them, but the parent has more wisdom and knows that it's in the long-term interest of that child 
to say no on this occasion. So love for God, who knows best for us, must come first, even before love for people. The sequence of these two commandments is vital and essential. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, a man must love me more than father or mother or brother or friend. Love to him must come first. Now this morning, as we address this theme, I want to uh, follow Rudyard Kipling's Six Honest Serving Men. I want to use that sort of as the grid to approach this sermon. Rudyard Kipling said, uh, I had six honest serving men who taught me all I knew. Their names were what and why and where and when and how and who. Well, let's answer these questions this morning. Let's investigate the text and ask the question, who should love God? Who can love God? Why should we love God? And how should we love God? Who should love God? And the answer is everyone. God is every man's creator and every man benefits from his goodness and his kindness. You know, theologians talk about a term that some resist because they don't like the terminology, but it's a, the concept is legitimate. The term is common grace. And the idea is that God is good to all. It reigns on the just and on the unjust. Every human being, whether they are God's elect or not, whether they're a child of God or not, is a recipient of many bounties in God's creation. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all of His works. Indeed, every man breathes his air, drinks his water, eats the product of God's created world, and benefits in not necessarily redemptive way, but in a natural way, from the goodness of the Lord. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You think a Washington delicious apple tastes better to a child of God than it does to a wicked man? No, it tastes the same. Their taste buds work just like yours do. You think they can enjoy a good night's rest after a hard day's labor as much as you and or I might? Absolutely, dear friends. And I suggest that it's everyone's duty. It's the law to love God. It's a commandment, which is the great commandment. And the word commandment means a law. It's the law because God's goodness is universally manifested. We sing a hymn sometimes that says this, Who can forbear to love a God so good and kind? Sure, He is worthy to be loved by me and all mankind. Who should love the Lord? Everybody. All mankind should love the Lord, because he is a God so good and kind. The fact is, though, this law of love that was given to God's creatures was violated when sin entered into this world. And now since sin's entrance in the heart of the carnal or the natural man, there is no love for God. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The carnal mind is enmity. That means it's hostile. It's antagonistic against God, and it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. In other words, as Romans 1.30 says, man by nature is a hater of God, not a lover of God. You see, because we are fallen, it is not our natural disposition to love God. The natural man, in fact, says 
Job 21, 14, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. In John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus told some Pharisees, you will not come unto me that you might have life. And in verse 42, he says, for you have not the love of God in you. There are people, my friends, in fact, all of us by nature, are brought into this world based on our fallen sinful nature without any desire for God in our hearts. We don't love God, seek God, fear God, or want anything to do with God. By nature, man is in violation of the very purpose of his existence, which is to love God with everything that he is and everything that he has. Let's ask the question now, who can love God? Who should love God? Everyone. But you see, there's a problem. And the problem is our hearts are predisposed in antithesis against God, and therefore only those in whose heart the law of love has been written by divine grace can, are capable of loving God. Romans chapter 5 verse 5 says, Tribulation worketh patience, patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now think about that language. When he says it's shed abroad in our hearts, it means our hearts are saturated with God's love. Every time I read that verse, I think of those old Pepto-Bismol commercials. You remember the pink bismuth liquid and they would show a picture of the human stomach, you know, a diagram and the pink liquid would just envelop it, you know. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. How did you get God's love in your heart? Well, when you're born again, the love of God is shed abroad in the heart by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Before that time, there is no love of God in our hearts. Our hearts are at enmity They're antagonistic to God, but yet when a person is regenerated at that moment, God puts his love. He writes the law of love in the heart so that now there is an inclination toward God. And Romans 8.28 describes this in theological terms when he says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Watch this qualifying phrase. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Who loves God? If all things work together for good to them that love God, who loves God? Only those who are the called according to his purpose. Now God purposed before time began to call a people. And the call of God is the effectual call when Christ speaks the life-giving voice and the dead sinner is brought to life, Lazarus-like. Did you know there's a point in the life of every child of God, every one of God's chosen people before time began, there's a point in his or her lifetime in which the Lord will call and there will be a response. John 5, 25 says it like this, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. And my friends, I don't know when that happened in my life. You know, I can look back to my earliest days. I remember beginning at about eight years of age to feel the motions of interest and love for God. The the preaching began to touch me and the hymns began to touch me. Up until that time, it was just, I mean, I'd rather be anywhere but church. (laughs) 
But you see, God did a work in my life, and I, it was imperceptible. I didn't realize that it was happening. It was below the level of consciousness. Just like I don't remember my first birth. You know, I don't remember July the 19th, 1962, when I was brought into this world. That's my birthday, by the way. That's what they always ask me at the pharmacist. When is your birthday? And I tell, ask them, are they going to send me a birthday card? Why do they want to know my birthday? But anyway, I don't remember that day. I'm told that it happened. I have evidence that it happened. It was below the level of consciousness. And I don't remember the day whenever the Lord called me, when he spoke to my dead, benighted soul and awakened me to spiritual things and I became interested in God but I'll tell you my friends at that point the law of love was written in my heart and in yours so who are those who love God only those who have been called according to his purpose love for God in other words is an evidence of a work of grace in the heart and isn't that what that wonderful verse that every primitive Baptist should commit to memory teaches? 1 John 4, 19. We love him because, what? He first loved us. Now, do you understand cause and effect? The principle that every effect has a cause. Well, we love God. That's an effect. But what caused it? You say, well, it's just natural. I was born with that desire. No, you weren't. You were born in the opposite sense. But my friends, if you love God today, the cause of that love is His love for you. We love Him because He first loved us. Now maybe you say today, Pastor, I've been loving God a long time. He's been loving you longer. I've been loving Him for 60 years, you say. Well, He's loved you from before time ever began, before the foundation of the world. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, saith the Lord. He's loved His people before time ever began and chosen them in Christ. He wrote their names in the Lamb's book of life before time ever began. And then He sent His Son into this world to die for them, and He sends the Spirit into their hearts to awaken them and to... Put His love inside of them. So if you love God today, it's because God put His love inside of you. He shed His love abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. We sing a hymn sometimes that speaks of this wonderful principle. Hymn number 231, the second verse of which says, Once earthly joy I craved. Now, was, can you say that? There was a time when I was only interested in the things that this world had to offer. Once, earthly joy I craved, I sought peace and rest. I just want to be happy. I just want to be comfortable. That was my whole approach to life. The hymn writer says, this is my story at one point. But now, so something's changed. Now, thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This, all my prayer shall be more love, O Christ. To thee. Now I want to love him more. Once I didn't care about him, now I do. And I pray that he would help me to show him and to exhibit more love for Christ. So who should love God? Everyone. But who can love God? Only those who've been born again by the Spirit of God. And now here's our third question this morning. Why should we love God? 
And the first answer is because of who he is. We should love God simply by virtue of who he is. God is infinitely lovely. Now, you know, it's easy to love the lovely. It's not so easy to love the unlovely. God's love for us is love to the unlovable, love to those who are not really worthy of his love. But our love to him, my friends, is merited. It's deserved. He deserves to be loved. Sure, he is worthy to be loved by you and me and all mankind because he is infinitely lovely. 1 John 4, 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. God is love. Notice he describes the nature of God in terms of love. Now, he didn't say that God is strong. That's true. He didn't say that God is wise. That's true. But he emphasizes that God is love. And therefore, we should love God because of all of his wonderful attributes. You know, sometimes I can just stand back and admire beauty in nature or something that is pleasurable. I can just reflect on it. You know, I can see a beautiful sunset or a majestic landscape or hear a melodious song. And it's something that is out of the norm. It's something extraordinary. Well, that's the way God is. When you think about his immutability that he doesn't change. When you think about his sovereignty, that he's the almighty God, that nothing is too hard for him. When you think about his wisdom and his grace and his faithfulness and his mercy and his power, when you think about all of the attributes of God, my friends, may I say he is altogether lovely. And then when you think about Jesus Christ, He's the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valleys. His name is Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's the Light of the World. He's the Great Shepherd of the Sheep. He's the Vine and we are the Branches. He's the Resurrection and the Life. He's the Bright and Morning Star. Oh, my friends, when you think of all of the beauties and the excellencies and the glories of Christ, our God, may I say He is altogether lovely. He's worthy to be loved simply because of who he is. Did you know if God never did anything for you or me, he still deserves to be loved by us? But secondly, not only because of who he is, but because of what he's done for us. Why should we love God? Because of what he's done for us. Yes, my friends, 1 John 4.19 again says, we love him because he first loved us, and that not only teaches that his love precedes ours, but that our love for him is a response to his gifts of love to us. We love him because he first loved us. Verse 10 of that chapter, 1 John 4.10, puts it like this. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You see, that's what really matters. Not whether you know God, but whether He knows you, whether you're known of Him, whether He loves you. Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Oh, my friends, may I say the greatest love gift of all that God has ever given to you or me is to pluck from His breast the darling of heaven and to send Him into this world for the likes of you and me. 
Jesus Christ left the portals of glory and the angelic praise, and He came to this low ground of sin and sorrow. He donned the rags of our sinful humanity, and He was mistreated. From the get-go, there was no room for Him in the end. This world had no place for Him. He even came to His own, and they rejected Him. His own received Him not. His own Jewish people would not acknowledge Him. He lived in poverty. The foxes had holes, the birds of the air had nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay His head. Our Lord Jesus didn't have a certain dwelling place. He was poor as far as this world's standards are concerned. He left the riches of heaven. 2 Corinthians 8 9 puts it like this, For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. My friends, He did all of that for you and for me. Not only so, but He was crowned with a crown of thorns, and His body hung in naked shame upon the cross of Calvary as He was made the object of ridicule and mockery. They said to Him such things as He saved others, but Himself He cannot save. Yes, my friends, this is the ultimate expression of divine love that He would come down here and endure such ignominy and such mistreatment for sinners like us. Indeed, this is the love of God, not that we love Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I want to say today that as a result of what Jesus did for us on the cross, you and I have been given the gift of salvation. We've been delivered from eternal wrath and eternal judgment. May I say we should love that message of salvation. Do you love God because of the gift that He's given you of salvation? He saved your soul. He saved me. He rescued me when I couldn't rescue myself. He reached down and picked you up from eternal judgment, like a firebrand from the burnings, like a beggar from the dunghill. Oh, have you ever gotten a glimpse of what you truly deserved by nature, my friends? I would have split hell wide open had it not been for sovereign mercy. But Jesus Christ reached down His mighty arm and picked this little helpless lamb up, this one that deserved to be the object of divine wrath forever. Indeed, Psalm 40.16 says, Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. We ought to love God today because He saved us. He delivered us from so great a death. He saved us and therefore our response should be, Let God be magnified. That's the reason that that woman came to Jesus in Simon the Pharisee's house. Luke chapter 7 verse 47. Jesus was having an evening meal with Simon and Simon was so glad to have such a distinguished guest, and Simon was putting on airs of importance, you know. And all of a sudden, this woman from the streets walks in, in her rags and poverty, and she's weeping profusely. And of course, that would have been startling enough, but then she falls at the feet of Simon's special guest, Jesus of Nazareth, and she begins to allow her tears to fall on his feet and wash his feet with her tears. And she takes her hair and she dries them. And Simon is aghast at this very crass and crude display of emotion. And, and it's inappropriate. And Simon is very upset about it. And Jesus perceives what he's thinking. And he says, Simon, let me ask you a question. He said, a certain creditor had two debtors. 
And he said, the one owed him a small debt, just a few pence, and the other owed him 500 pence. We might say that one owed him $5 and the other owed him $500,000. And he said, because neither one had anything with which to pay, which one would be the most grateful? Now, I'm sure both would have been grateful. Thank you for forgiving my $5 debt. But if he had forgiven somebody $5 and forgiven somebody else $500,000, I dare say the one that had been forgiven a half a million dollars would be the most grateful, wouldn't he? Jesus says, which one would love him the most? Would love him the most? And he said, the one that was forgiven the great debt. And Jesus then turned to the woman and he said to Simon, you see this woman? The reason she loves me so much is because she's been forgiven so much. I want to ask you today, my friend, have you been forgiven a great debt? Did you owe a great debt because of your sins to God? You know, I think about my life. I think about my regrets. Sometimes I can just list the things in my life, you know, that I'm ashamed of. And I begin to think about my track record and I I have to say, oh Lord, if it's not for your sovereign mercy, then I'm done for. But you see, dear friends, there's not a one of us who's good enough to be loved by God. God would be just not to love me. He didn't have to save me. I would have deserved to spend eternity in hell. If thou, my soul, were sent to hell, thy righteous law, he says, would approve it well. Fact is, dear friends, we ought to love God today because of his great gift of salvation. That's why in this hymn, number 518 in our hymnal, he says, I love my Savior God because he first loved me, because he shed his precious blood to set my spirit free. Can you say that this morning? Twas love my bosom felt and made me wipe mine eyes when low before his throne I knelt to pour my feeble cries. Listen to this. Touched by his dying love, I melted into grief. Swift on the wings of love, he moved and brought me swift relief. With my whole heart, I love the God that loved and bled, who left the shining realms above and suffered in my stead. Why should you love God today? Because he saved you. Why should I love him? Because he did for me what I was incapable of doing for myself. And I want to tell you another reason that we ought to love God today is because He's not only given us the gift of salvation, but He's given us many answers to prayer in our lives. How many prayers have you ever offered that God has answered? And you've noticed the answer and you've said, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in my eyes. Psalm 116 verse 1 says, I love the Lord because He hath heard the voice of my supplications. I want to tell you, God has given me so many gifts in my life. He's heard so many prayers. He's taken care of me 24-7 for almost 62 years now. And I dare say he is worthy of my love. And think of all the other gifts that he's bestowed upon you. Yes, why should we love God? Our response to him of love is a response because of his loving gifts to us. Now, let's ask the next question. We've asked the question, who should, who can? And why should we love God? Let's ask the question, how should we love God? 
And our text, in a general sense, says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now, the passage I quoted in Deuteronomy 6, 5 adds the word with all thy might. And Luke 10, 47 calls it strength. So we've got four categories. We're to love our God with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our might or our strength. Four categories. But in a general sense, I want you to notice that word all. Love the Lord your God with all, with every faculty that you possess at all times, in all circumstances, in all conditions. We're to love God with everything that we have. Now that's a pretty high mark, and I wonder if you've ever attained it. I haven't loved God with everything that I have and everything that I am for one second in my life, and you haven't either. Not with everything, have we? But it's the law. This is what God requires of us, is that our everything would be devoted to Him. He requires that every faculty that we possess would be devoted to Him. Let me illustrate it like this. Some of us like to use cruise control when we're driving down the highway. As you drive down the highway and, you know, you're on the interstate, perhaps you'll put it on 55, right? 65, 70, perhaps. But anyway, you, look, you like that cruise control. Now, what would you think of a driver at the Indy 500 driving on cruise control? Do they sit back and put it on cruise and just enjoy the ride? No. Do you know there's a difference in a person driving on cruise control and a race car driver in competition? A race car driver expends every sense, every attention is focused on. He strains every muscle. It's hard work. It's a very intense and strenuous kind of activity. May I suggest that our love for God should not be a cruise control kind of love in which we just sort of cruise through life in a laissez-faire sort of mindset, but it should be with the intensity and the comprehensiveness of a race car driver at the Indianapolis 500 in which every attention is focused, everything that I am and everything that I have should be focused on him. Notice how Paul puts it using another metaphor in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I press toward the mark. And the word press means that I strain every muscle. Now I've loved to watch track and field competitions, and maybe some of you remember the movie from years ago, Chariots of Fire, in which uh, Eric Little and Harold Abrams would run, and the cameraman from time to time will give a close-up on the face of these runners as they're trying to hit the tape first, and you can see almost agony on their faces as they're straining every muscle to be the first to hit the tape. I suggest that kind of strenuous intensity is what God requires of us when it comes to loving Him. And our text indicates when He says we're to love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our strength. But again, I ask the question, who has done this? Have you? Have you ever for one millisecond loved God with all that you are and all that you have? I haven't. And that's why we need the grace of God. 
in our lives. Aren't you thankful for grace? The grace of Christ, my friends, covers our shortcomings. The hymn writer puts it well in that hymn again, More Love to Thee, O Christ, hymn number 231. More love to Thee, O Christ, more love to Thee. You see, this is our prayer. We want to be better. We want to grow in our love. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. Because we fall short, we need to grow in our love to God. Let's answer the question, how should we love God in more specific terms? And Jesus gives us four categories. Love him with your heart. That is, your love to him must be a devotional love. Through prayer, through communion with God each day, through public worship with the saints, we are to love God with our hearts, devotionally. We're to draw nigh to Him, enjoy spending time with Him. You know when you love somebody, you want to spend time with them? We can't say we truly love God if we never want to spend time with Him in prayer, if we never want to read His Word, if we never spend time in communion with Him, if we don't walk with Him. Have you ever thought of it? That I'm walking with God. I want to walk with God today. When you get up in the morning, today, God, please help me to walk beside you, to commune with you, to think upon your name, to meditate on your word, to realize your presence. Help me to pray to you and to have this ongoing conversation throughout the day so that when I come to the close of this day, I can say I've walked with God today. And I, I know that none of us do it completely. But my friends, we could be more spiritual. We could be more devoted. So it's important for us to put our hearts in it. May our hearts be the motivation. May love motivate us. His love constrain us to love Him more by communing with Him, by being at the house of God when the doors are open for public worship. That's one of the ways we show love to God. We want to draw nigh to Him because we're loving Him from our hearts. It's not just we're checking the boxes and going through it mechanically, but may God help us, my friends, to love God with all of our hearts and then with all of our souls. Our love is to be not only a devotional love, but a volitional love. Make a willful decision each day, dear friend, to obey God. That's really the way that we prove our love to God. John 14, 15 says, If a man love me, he will keep my words. He says we're to show our love to him by keeping his commandments. Now we could sing, oh, how I love Jesus to the top of our lungs. But if we don't show it by obeying him, then that's hypocrisy. First John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So we're to love him from the soul with our will as well as with our affections and our hearts. And then we're to love him with our minds. It's to be an intellectual kind of love. Study His Word. Learn His truth. Grow in your understanding of who He is and what He's done. You see, one of the ways we love God with our minds is by spending the time necessary to learn and to grow. To be educated with His truth. And then we're to love God with our strength or our might. It's to be a practical love, serving Him with everything that we have. Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Simon, lovest thou me? And then Peter says, yes. And Jesus replies, then feed my lambs and feed my sheep. You prove your love through serving Him. I love 
Exodus 21.5, the law that was given to an indentured servant when his time had come to an end and it was time for him to leave. It says if he loves his master and doesn't want to leave, he can say, bore my ear through with an awl. You know, they'd back that servant up against a post and they would drill a hole in his ear and put a stick in it, you know, bore my ear through with an awl to prove that he voluntarily stayed on to work for his master. Even though he had the right to go free, yet he was serving him out of love, not out of obligation. We ought to serve our God out of love with everything that we have. I know our time is gone this morning, but I want to ask one question as we close. How may we love God? We've asked the questions this morning, who should, who can, why should, and how should. Let's ask the question, how do we love God or how may we love God? And I would say one of the best ways you can love God is by loving his people. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, if a man say, I love God, but he hates his neighbor, he's a liar. For how can a man love God whom he hath not seen and hate his neighbor whom he hath seen? Now what he's saying here is the person that says, oh, I love God, but I don't want anything to do with other people. I can get along with him okay, but I can't get along with anybody else. One of the ways we prove our love to God is by loving the people around us, warts and all with all of their faults and failures and idiosyncrasies and bizarre habits. You say, well, these people are hard to love. Well, you are too. (laughs) And God loved you. You say, God's not hard to love. He's easy to love. But you see, Jesus said, inasmuch as you serve one of these, the least of my children, you've done it unto me, right? The way to show your love for the Lord is by loving the people around you in their imperfections, in their faults and failures, in their stumblings and mumblings and bumblings. And if that's not the case, then there's not hope for any of us, my friends. Thank God that God's people love me in spite of myself. And finally, I would say this morning, we're to love God by loving His Word. Loving His Word. Psalm 119 verse 97 says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. In 11 times in Psalm 119, the psalmist speaks of love for the Word of God. I encourage you to go through that chapter and just write down the citation of each passage where he speaks of his love for God's Word. Do you love your Bible? Well, you say, oh, I do. Well, do you ever pick it up? (laughs) You ever read it? One of the ways we love God is by loving His Word. By the way, the more you read your Bible, the more you're going to find your heart inclined to love God, to think about Him. We've got to make the effort to draw nigh to God if He's going to draw nigh to us. In the 119th Psalm, the psalmist said he loves God's Word more than his necessary food. Now, I love food. Man, I like to eat. I'm not going to miss a meal. But he said, I'm willing to miss a meal to read the Word of God. I love God more than my necessary food. That is impressive. That's love for God. He says he loves God more than money or silver and gold, verses 72 and 127. He loves God more than his sleep. Now, I like sleep. Man, I love to rest. I had trouble getting up this morning because I didn't set my alarm. The psalmist says, I love God more than sleep. He says he loves God more than man's wisdom, more than social life and contact with other people. We ought to love God's people. We ought to love His Word. Here's how we love Him. 
and we're to love his church. Psalm 26 and 3 says, I love the habitation of thy house. Can you say that today, my friends? God's house is a place of rest and safety in a world of conflict, heartache, confusion, and error. I love these moments when we're together on Sunday mornings. I hope you do too. The hymn writer put all of this succinctly when he says, Do not I love thee, O my God. Behold my heart and see, and turn each cursed idol out that dares to rival thee. Indeed, my friends, one of the best ways you can show your love for God, the great commandment, even though it's not a perfect love like it should be, and we want to grow in it, but yet identify yourself with the church. Become a part of His people. Draw nigh to Him in the congregation of the saints with others who love God. In a world that is showing its hatred and animosity toward God more and more, God's people surely need to rediscover the great commandment, the first and most important commandment, to love our God supremely, and then to love each other too. Lord, love to thee.